Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. A bustling crowd gathered outside Sydney's Central Criminal Court on the morning of December 7, 1960. Photographers from just about every newspaper in town waited at the court gates, flashbulbs ready to fire at a moment's notice. Promptly at 10, the mass of people went from a stagnant group to an absolute frenzy. At a passing glance, you'd think this was the arrival of some celebrity or politician. But no, it was a middle-aged kindergarten teacher named Diana Yates. She walked with her head held high and her lawyer attached at the hip. Everyone followed her slim silhouette until it disappeared behind the courtroom doors. But then another car pulled up and once more the crowd erupted. This time it was a man, Dr. Eric Hedberg. He stood at a towering six foot four, and his wavy brown hair was slicked back perfectly. Three lawyers followed him closely, and he hardly showed any recognition to the swarm that screamed out his name. He kept his eyes glued straight ahead and was out of sight within seconds. As soon as he was away from the crowd, he felt a wave of anxiety surge over him. He was a professional man, a surgeon, a father, and yet... He was about to stand trial for murder. He saw Diana waiting by the courtroom doors and nodded solemnly. He knew she must be feeling similarly. As far as the police and much of the general public were concerned, Diana Yates was his accomplice. Hedberg patted the sweat away from his forehead and combed back his hair. But it didn't matter how poised he appeared... All that mattered now was whether the jury thought that he was capable of murdering his close friend and colleague, Dr. Jim Yates. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the murder of Dr. Jim Yates. Last week, we examined how a normal household accident turned into a mysterious murder case. This week, we'll cover the murder trial of Jim Yates' wife and her potential paramour, Dr. Eric Hedberg. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. I'm Kathleen Goltar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. 
Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat the story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. On September 24th, 1960, Detective Ray Benson showed up unannounced to the home of Diana Yates. Just a week and a half earlier, Diana's husband, Jim, was found dead in the family's garage. As Benson and his colleagues dug further into the case, they began to realize that something much more complicated was afoot. And every twist and turn in the case seemed to lead right back to Diana Yates. It also led to the man that the police were currently considering their prime suspect, Dr. Eric Hedberg. Hedberg was a friend and co-worker of Jim Yates, and according to a number of different sources, he and Diana had been engaged in an affair for quite some time. So Benson sought answers. However, he didn't quite get what he was looking for. Hello, Miss Yates? Is that you? I can hardly see you. Yes, well, my lawyer gave me strict instructions on how to proceed with all of this. I really shouldn't even be talking to you right now. We already went over this. You have nothing to worry about. We just want to find out what happened to Jim. I just... I'm not allowed to say anything. Or let you in. I better call him now. Miss Yates, please. That's not necessary. Thirty minutes later, a town car pulled up outside of the Yates' home. A tall and handsome man with jet black hair stepped out and greeted the detective. He happily ushered Benson inside the home. This wasn't just any lawyer. This was Stanley Howard. In Sydney, he was the lawyer. And as soon as Benson saw him flash that toothy grin, he knew that this case was going to drag on for a lot longer than he had hoped. Now, Miss Yates, I have a few questions about... I'm so sorry, officer, but my client will not be answering any questions this afternoon. Diana, come on. You want to help us, right? This is all just to help your husband. Is there anything else? So, Miss Yates, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are refusing to cooperate with the police. Is that right? Not cooperating? This is the fourth time you've called upon my client to relive some deeply traumatic events. She has let you in her home and has been nothing but civil. How exactly is she not cooperating, detective? Diana, you're better than this. That'll be all. While Benson was trying to plan his next move, his partner, Lieutenant Dick Lindrum, was across town at the Bank of New South Wales. The bank manager and two employees escorted the detective into a room where he was handed the late Joyce Hedberg's safety deposit box. And nothing could prepare him for what he found inside. First, Lendrum uncovered an envelope marked Letter to Diana Yates, written by Eric Hedberg, 1959. The detective almost started shaking with anticipation as he peeled back the adhesive and opened the letter. Anticipating some declaration of love or plea for divorce, 
Lendrum was shocked when he discovered that Hedberg had taken this opportunity to express himself in a more artistic manner. It was a poem. Saddest of all to love and be loved, and yet to be parted, to see both pillars of a soaring arch forced apart by circumstance, each to weather, to waste in sight of each. This is the final misery. Is there not some secret word, some charm, some mystic rite to save what never will occur again? Lendrum couldn't help but laugh. There was something undeniably absurd about this esteemed surgeon penning love poems to his colleague's wife. It was like something out of a soap opera. But what he discovered next brought him back down to earth and reminded the detective that this situation was all too real. Beneath a mess of old pay stubs and passport photos were two copies of the late Joyce Hedberg's will. One was dated July 1953, the other October 1959. The biggest difference was that the latter one had left out Eric Hedberg entirely. Neither of these documents directly implicated Hedberg in anything criminal. However, they strongly supported the theory that he was having an affair with Diana Yates. The two wills were evidence that he and his wife had a falling out near the time of her death. And as far as the police were concerned, this was a massive win. While papers reported that the Yates case was having little to no movement, those in the know at the Sydney Police Department were grinning ear to ear. If things kept up at this rate, They'd have Hedberg convicted in no time. In fact, the case was getting so hot that it began attracting attention from one of the department's most promising up-and-coming detectives, Ray Kelly. Lendrum and Benson were seasoned and methodical. But if they were veteran marathon runners, then Kelly was a sprinter. He went over Benson and Lendrum's heads and managed to get put on the case. He spared no hesitation diving in. Once word spread that he was getting involved in the Yates case, the press took notice. On September 28th, local newspapers published articles discussing how the hotshot detective would be breathing some much-needed life into the investigation. His main task would be getting a confession out of the mystery doctor who held the key to this baffling murder. That morning, Kelly walked into the station with his head held high. He was going to go for gold. No rounds through the hospital, questioning nurses and doctors. The due diligence stopped here. He was going to get Hedberg in a room and not leave until he had a confession. However, Benson and Lindrum were waiting for him outside his office. They were about to take the wind out of his sails. You have any idea what you've done, Kelly? If you'd get out of the way and let me into my office, I might just save this case, if you don't mind. I think you've done the opposite. We got a wire from both lawyers, Hedberg's and the Yates family. They read about the new detective in the papers. About how he always gets his man? How he'll go to any extreme? And now, neither suspect is willing to meet with the police. We're being completely stonewalled. Oh, come on. Like either of them were cooperating in the first place. It doesn't matter, Kelly. We had a chance. They were at least willing to be in the same room as us. Now we won't be seeing either of their faces unless this thing goes to court. Or unless we find enough evidence to arrest that Hedberg scumbag. This isn't some TV show. There's no smoking gun. That's never going to happen. 
and the only chance we had was getting Yates or Hedberg into the station to get a confession. Now that is never going to happen. Just as the case started heating back up, it went completely cold. It was a heavy blow. The detectives were going to have to find an entirely different angle if they were to regain momentum. Not to mention, the frustration was eating away at Lendrum and Benson. As a result, one of the two was about to make an impulsive decision that would mar their professional reputation forever. Coming up, a rift forms between Detectives Benson and Lindrum, and the Yates inquest begins. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath, from murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed, confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now back to the story. By the end of September 1960, the investigation into the murder of Dr. Jim Yates was starting to take a toll on detectives Ray Benson and Dick Lendrum. It seemed as though every step forward was met with several steps back. Lendrum had almost a decade on Benson, so he was used to this sort of unpredictable pace. But Benson, not only less experienced than his partner, but also far more erratic and ill-tempered, didn't have such an easy go of it. After Eric Hedberg and Diana Yates both decided to withhold any further cooperation with the police, Benson started to crack. This isn't to say he stopped working the case, but his energy shifted dramatically from dedicated to unhinged. And so it came as no surprise to his fellow officers that his reaction to the latest development in the investigation was a bit overblown. Hey, Benson, you might want to hear this. What is it? Hedberg? Diana? Something about the will? Not quite, but we got a hold of Joyce Hedberg's death certificate, and something isn't quite checking out. I don't have all day. Spit it out. Well, the doctor who signed the certificate, we called him up and he claims to have never inspected the body. So you're telling me the certificate might be a fake? Hedberg could have forged the signature himself? That's a bit of a stretch. We could give the funeral parlor a call and- What's it matter? The man is a murderer, plain and simple. Now, I might be the only one around here who sees it, but I'm not gonna wait around for him to kill a third time. Come on, we're putting an end to this. What? This is hardly probable cause. Are you denying your superior? You want me to write you up for insubordination? 
Now get in the cruiser. Benson and the officer piled into the car and took off speeding towards Sydney Hospital. They were going to place the doctor under arrest for the murder of Joyce Hedberg and Jim Yates. However, once word circulated of Benson's hasty and unprofessional course of action, Detective Lindrum dropped everything. Benson, what on earth do you think you're doing? I'm solving this case. You know Hedberg is guilty as well as I do. Is this some sort of joke? Benson, you turn that car around this second or you're going to get kicked off the force. Is that what you want? Enough beating around the bush. We're treating these monsters like children. No more due diligence. No more snooping around the hospitals. I mean, Dick, come on. The man killed his wife. I am with you. Trust me. I know a guilty man when I see one, and Eric Hedberg is as guilty as they come. But this isn't how this works. Plus, we're not investigating the murder of his wife. Come on, you know it as well as I do. This is only going to set us back. Turn the car around, Benson. <sighs> Benson did as he was told, and while Lindrum was able to sympathize with his exhausted and enraged partner, this sort of behavior was unacceptable. He kept the incident from his supervisor, but he knew that keeping him on the case in the same capacity would put the entire investigation in jeopardy. From that moment on, Benson was kept at arm's length. Despite the hiccup, the officers remained focused and continued digging. And on October 4th, Detective Lindrum was called to Sydney University's pharmacology department to discuss an exciting new development. Ah, Detective Lindrum, please take a seat. <sighs> Give me some good news, Professor. You have no idea how dearly we all need it. Well, you're in luck, my friend. We took several tissue samples from Dr. Yates' heart and found five distinct locations where there is an abnormal presence. Adrenaline? Adrenaline. Expertly administered adrenaline. And an objectively lethal amount. The fact that 280 micrograms remained in the tissue after all this time indicates that whoever did this to the doctor was trying to hurt him. No two ways about it. While it did not tie directly to Dr. Hedberg, this was objective proof that Jim Yates was murdered and in the veritable ocean of hearsay evidence that the detectives had been wading in, that meant a tremendous amount. The next day, the police chief held a meeting to discuss all the new findings in the Yates case. Lindrum stood proudly and presented his findings to a very pleased room. But he wasn't the only one with an exciting break in the case. Another officer working the case had decided to stop by and have another chat with Patsy Wilson, Joyce Hedberg's sister. He briefed her on the latest with the case, but one detail jumped out at her. Dr. Hedberg had come to the station weeks earlier to explain that he had actually purchased adrenaline that was later stolen from his car days before Yates' death. He said the reason he had purchased vials of the medication was to treat his son's asthma. But, according to Patsy, her nephew did not have asthma. She was sure of it. The officer then contacted Hedberg's family physician to confirm the claim, and the pile of incriminating evidence continued to grow. The conference room where the detectives gathered was bubbling over with energy and merriment. However, there was one person whose absence could not be ignored. Benson sat just a few feet away, stewing with resentment as the case moved forward without him. 
Later that night, Jack Whelan, a fellow detective, invited Benson out for a beer at a local hotel bar. But Benson seethed at the bar, downing pint after pint. Whelan realized Benson was drunkenly moping and, no stranger to his fiery temper, decided to make sure the evening wasn't going to take a turn for the worse. Save some for the fishes, Benson. I could have had him, you know. It would have all been so simple. Just sat Hedberg down, fed him something about how he was trying to do what he needed for the woman he loved, how good of a mother Diana could have been, how a few years in jail is better than life, and boom, would have confessed on the spot. I know, Ray, we all do. No one thinks any less of you. Everyone on the force has had moments when all the procedure, the waiting, the playing dumb, it all gets to be too much, even Lendrum. Yeah, yeah. I'd be surprised if the old man even cares about keeping people like Hedberg off the streets. He just wants the credit. You know you'd better find a way to play nice. You'll be hitting the stand soon. You bring that attitude with you into the courtroom, and no good will come of it. Stay out of trouble, detective. Benson woke up the next morning with a nasty hangover, but more importantly, a renewed sense of understanding. He was no stranger to the fact that this job wasn't always the most validating, and Whelan was right. The coroner had just set aside a week in December for the Yates inquest at the Central Criminal Court in Sydney. Within just a month's time, it no longer mattered what Lendrum or Benson thought. It would be up to the jury to decide whether Eric Hedberg would remain a free man. Coming up, the inquest into the murder of Dr. Jim Yates begins. And now, back to the story. The coroner's inquiry began on December 7, 1960. It had only been three months since Dr. Jim Yates was found dead. But to those pulled into the investigation's current, it felt like a lifetime. Eric Hedberg and Diana Yates made their way into the courtroom by 10 that morning. Each was wearing their finest clothing and did not have a single hair out of place. But under the fluorescent lights of the court, both looked as though they had been up for days on end. The Yates murder had been at the forefront of local media for months, and all the key players were tantamount to local celebrities. Everyone in the room was so distracted by the infamous Dr. Hedberg and the unfaithful Diana Yates, they were caught off guard once court was called into session. The first day began with Detective Alan Clark being called to the stand. He had been one of the first officers to arrive at the scene of Jim Yates' murder. Over the next 10 minutes, he detailed what he saw on September 14th, and he spared no gruesome detail. Clark described how Yates' scalp and hands were caked with blood. As Clark continued, Diana seemed to be holding her breath. And as if that first day in court seemed like it couldn't get any more difficult for Mrs. Yates, numerous old friends and cohorts of Jim Yates were then called to the stand. For the next 30 minutes, tales of Jim's bravery, selflessness, and professionalism took over the room. Whether it was in the operating room, the jungles of New Guinea during his time as a military medic, or just getting a pint with a friend, the man seemed to charm just about everyone he ever met. 
The reporters and photographers that lined the walls of the courtroom kept their eyes glued on Eric Hedberg. As countless people sang the late doctor's praises, Hedberg's face remained without expression. His eyes seemed vacant. Over the next few hours, multiple officers, including Detective Lindrum, explained the lack of cooperation from Diana Yates and Eric Hedberg. Multiple times, Hedberg's lawyer asked if there was any evidence outside of hearsay that directly linked his client to the death of Jim Yates. And every time, the answer was no. Court adjourned at one in the afternoon. As the packed room filed out, a reporter couldn't help but notice Hedberg flash a furtive smile at Diana. Two hours later, the inquest started back up. Dick Lindrum sat in his seat and looked like a kid on Christmas as he noticed the judge studying an envelope. It was presented to the court as Exhibit 26, but Lindrum knew what it really was. He was called to the stand. Detective Lindrum, can you explain to the court what exactly is in this envelope? It is some sort of poem, Your Honor, written by Eric Hedberg. Objection, Your Honor. There's no substantial proof that my client wrote that. The poem in question was written by hand, and the document was cross-referenced with samples I obtained from Sydney Hospital that were written by Dr. Hedberg. The handwriting expert at the Criminal Investigation Branch concluded that both samples were written by the same person, Dr. Eric Hedberg. Be that as it may, these documents are irrelevant to this hearing. Respectfully, I disagree. I hereby admit this document as tenable evidence. Please carry on, detective. Lendrum did his best to use the piece of writing as proof of Hedberg's infidelity and lack of character. However, it ended up just endearing the doctor to the jury. He blushed and wiped sweat from his brow as the poem was read aloud, and audible giggles could be heard coming from the gallery. He seemed more like a lovesick teenager than a bitter murderer. The day ended on an anticlimactic note, with no one knowing what direction the inquest was heading in, but both sides still had plenty of aces up their sleeves. On December 9th, the second day of the trial, three people who had been crusading against Eric Hedberg met in person for the first time. Neil Yates, Patsy Smith, and one of Joyce's oldest friends, Freena Humphreys, shared an emotional introduction outside of the courtroom. Before the day was called into session, the three recounted fond stories of their loved ones whom they believed had died at the hands of Hedberg. Right as they heard the first gavel bang, Patsy grabbed each of their hands. Into battle. We're doing this for Joyce and Neil. We're doing this for Jim as well. My sister, your friend, your brother, it's all the same. All three of them had tears welling in their eyes as they confidently walked into the courtroom. Frina was the first called to the stand. She talked at length about how her concern for Joyce grew and grew with each passing year that she remained married to Hedberg. She remembered how insistent he was that he administer her treatment himself for various ailments. But each time, Joyce would emerge even sicker than ever sometimes even unable to remain conscious. Frina's final statement was spent recalling how about a month after Joyce received her breast cancer diagnosis, Hedberg told her if it weren't for her illness, he would have left her right then and there. 
Long gone was the innocent poetry writing Eric Hedberg that the court sympathized with two days ago. Now they felt as though they were in the midst of a cold-hearted sociopath. Patsy stepped up next and continued the story right where Frina left off. Joyce worried for years and years about her marriage. What kills me the most is that she loved Eric. She gave him everything, but it was never enough. Not enough for what, Miss Smith? Enough to get him to keep his eyes off of that awful woman, Diana. The two of them were at it for years, and that's not even the worst of it. What Frina said, it's all true. Do you have any proof to back up this claim? No, but you tell me how it looks, Your Honor. A cheating husband injects his nagging wife with some ungodly substance at home, and the next day she can't even keep her eyes open? She even has a heart attack. I mean, please, you all, you just, you just have to, you just have to. (laughs) Patsy had become so fraught with emotion that she fainted right there in the witness stand. She regained consciousness quickly and didn't sustain any injuries, but it certainly made quite the statement. When court adjourned that day, those in Jim Yates' camp thought that they had Hedberg pinned in the corner. However, as the inquest carried on, the flip-flopping did not cease. Even though there were a number of incriminating testimonies against Eric Hedberg and Diana Yates, there was little to no physical evidence to back them up. It came down to one person's word against another. Then, on the 11th day of the trial, on January 19, 1961, things came to a head, and it left just about everyone in the courtroom completely stunned. After hearing extensive coroner's reports, endless testimonies, and even reviewing some amateur poetry, the judge came to the conclusion that there simply was not enough compelling evidence to charge anyone with the murder of Dr. Jim Yates. He agreed that this was indeed a murder, but the perpetrator was not in the courtroom. At least that was the picture painted by the evidence, or the lack thereof. Upon hearing the ruling, neither Hedberg nor Diana seemed particularly happy, shocked, certainly, but the joyful sighs of relief that the people of the gallery were anticipating never came. In their place were somber looks of confusion and acceptance, almost as if a grave mistake had been made. The two of them left the courtroom able to put this all behind them, but life did not return to normal for either Diana Yates or Eric Hedberg. Photographers were regularly positioned outside their places of work and homes to snap pictures for the local tabloids, as were people who weren't so happy with the verdict. Verbal harassment became a normal part of life. In the spring of that year, the New South Wales government offered up a reward of 1,000 Australian pounds to anyone who could deliver information on who was responsible for the murder of Jim Yates. To Detectives Benson and Lendrum, this was a useless waste of government money. They knew exactly who killed him, and he was still a free man. No real leads ever turned up. The government renewed the reward offer a few years later, but it was met with even less attention. It seemed as though the murder of Jim Yates had drifted into the background of cultural consciousness. But the doctors who worked with him at Sydney Hospital, his four brothers, 
and the many who would never forget the murder of Jim Yates were in for a shock in May 1964. Eric Hedberg and Diana Yates were happily married in the rural Australian town of Oberon. A local newspaper wrote about the union and referred to the newlyweds as having been involved as witnesses in the murder case of an esteemed doctor some years ago. With all that in mind, I think Eric Hedberg is absolutely responsible for the murder of Jim Yates. Between his consistently faulty alibi and the fact that he was having an affair with Jim's wife, it all adds up. While that may all be true, I don't think he's guilty of murdering his wife, Joyce. The testimonies of Patsy Smith and Freena Humphreys are compelling, but there is no further evidence that he had anything to do with her death other than speculation. Regardless of who is to blame, Jim Yates was a man who dedicated his life to the well-being of others. And ultimately, regardless of their innocence, both Diana Yates and Eric Hedberg betrayed him gravely. A man whose spirit was as bright and kind as Jim should have been treated with far more respect by his close friend and spouse. But sadly, while he should be remembered for his time saving lives in the war and every day at Sydney Hospital, he will be immortalized on the ground of his garage with a hole in his heart. again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. For more information amongst the many sources we used, we found The Needle in the Heart Murder, the mysterious death of Dr. Yates by Candace Sutton to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Joe Hernandez, Brian Kim, Albert Park, Ellie Schiff, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs> <laughs>